my name is Allison Fabrizio. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm calling in from the land of the Osage in St. Louis, Missouri. I am part of the People of the Global Action or Global Majority Action Team, and I have the great privilege to be here and introduce Priscilla Talley. Priscilla Talley is a fellow at large at the Op-Ed Project, an organization with the mission to change who writes history. Her work includes being a fellowship coach in partnership with the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Additionally, she is a 2020 Public Voices Fellow of the Op-Ed Project and the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Her justice-centered writings have reached millions of readers, and she has been published by BET. In these times, Miss Magazine, Grace, The Hill, Zora, World War Zero, The Urbanist, The Progressive, The Sacramento Bee, Quad City Times, Hawaii Tribune, Herald, Claiming Daily Herald, The Chronicle, Herald News, Banger Daily News, Merced Sun Star, Time Herald Records, The Catskills Edition, Newsbug, The Marietta Daily Journal, The Change Creator Magazine a lot yeah she is also an entertainment writer with a portfolio that includes cbs the las vegas and the las vegas guardian liberty voice she's a celebrity she does celebrity interviews and grammy campaigns for award-winning artists prior to working with the op-ed project priscilla was a development coordinator and diversity outreach coordinator at citizens climate education where she started the climate and culture action team welcome Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, after that wonderful introduction, I do not feel compelled to say any more about myself. So we can hop right in. Thank you, everyone, for being here with me today. And today we're going to talk about putting people first to save Earth and communicating beyond the eco chambers. And next slide, please, to go to our agenda. Thank you so much for running the slides for me. Okay, so we're going to talk about first communicating climate complexities, then we're going to talk about avoiding saviorism, the 3D strategy, data-driven impact, and communicating your mission. So first as we discuss communicating climate complexities, in order for us to properly navigate this discussion around a climate eco-chamber, let's first add some context to what that eco-chamber is. So if you go back to 2010, researchers found that eco-chambers were contributing to a lack of meaningful climate action in the political arena. And the study noted that, and I can quote it directly from the study, research shows how the eco-chamber can block progress towards a political resolution on climate change. Individuals who get their information from the same sources with the same perspective may be under the impression that theirs is the dormant perspective, the dominant perspective, excuse me, regardless of what the science says. Okay, but obviously times have changed since then, right? And a 2019 study from the University of um, Exeter found that evidence of polarizing climate eco-chambers on Reddit were less prevalent. And that directly conflicted with previous research on Twitter and that 2010 data about the climate eco-chambers, which was great news. However, these varying results highlighting the complexity of the climate uh, eco-chamber kept varying because they will always vary based on the communication platforms people use and the way that individuals are communicating and just who they are. So generally an eco chamber is an environment where a person only encounters information or opinions that reflect and reinforce their own views. And what this does for some of us is makes us believe strongly in information that's either incorrect or if that information is correct, it creates confirmation bias either way, 
that makes it difficult to digest or even consider differing viewpoints. So sometimes you may say that you're open to listening to other viewpoints on climate, but once you're out of that eco chamber, you feel uncomfortable. And it's not necessarily the case that just because you're willing to listen, that you're not teetering back into that eco chamber. So I want to discuss with you how we can get beyond those eco chambers. And I'm going to emphasize that for my points made in the discussion, what I'm referring to is the communities that I engage with on climate and those communities remain heavily misrepresented and underrepresented in the climate movement. So you'll see as I continue on more specifics around the communities that I'm targeting that are underrepresented communities. And they are the ones that are most impacted by climate change while contributing the very least to it because that's where I'm always going to focus. So when you're communicating about climate change in these communities, I like to suggest a three-tiered approach with talking points that can help you have a more productive conversation. Okay, so we all know that climate change is a big, complex, and frightening issue. So I like to break it down by the impact it has on the individual, and the impact it has on the local level and then add a bit of a global lens to it. But I'm still going to do it in a way as to not overwhelm whoever my audience may be. And that's whether I'm speaking to them verbally or in writing. So your three-tiered list, if you create one, does not have to look like this. It'll need to be catered to whatever room you're going into. But either way, I suggest that you have three layers in order to navigate the nuances of climate and encourage climate action without overwhelming people and losing potential climate activists in the process. Okay, so let's start with the individual impact because people are far more likely to care about, can we go back one please? Thank you. Because people are far more likely to care about what affects them directly. But isn't it interesting that I'm in Louisiana, extreme weather is so constant, it has rocked our world here in the state but many people in our state still aren't set to lead on climate. They have other priorities that they still consider more urgent. So on a more personal level, this tells me what? That if I communicate about climate change by making it primarily about storms or even fossil fuels, I'm not going to be very effective in my own region where it's happening so frequently. So I take a different approach. And I know that the number of days of dangerous heat waves they're continuing to increase in Louisiana and the heat increases the likelihood of emergency room visits for issues like anxiety and mood disorders and even self-harm. And the more that people are at risk of this and they find themselves at the emergency room, then what we're having is a capacity issue because emergency room waiting times are going to increase for everyone. Healthcare staff is going to face more stress and all of the effects of this can easily hit close to home for people on a personal level. So now expanding to the discussion on a community level, even beyond health, I'm gonna go the direction that a lot of people are passionate about and it's culture because everyone doesn't own a home to feel stirred by how climate change leads to increased home insurance rates or how climate change impacts the health of children. That's a strong community talking point and it's extremely important but sometimes that can't even be my go-to because if I'm talking to someone with no children or younger relatives, or if I'm talking to parents who are already navigating health crises with their children and their families, then that can be insensitive. And they just may not want to talk about that. 
So culture is something I found, not only is it unique in every region, it's something that blends into the definition of folks' identities. And they are more than happy to talk about these things in very interesting ways, ways we don't even expect sometimes. So in Louisiana, I'm especially lucky because our cultural celebrations really revolve around food and having a good time. So I can speak more about how climate change is impacting the food we love so much and limiting the supply of juicy oysters and crawfish at the seafood bowls. And somewhere within this list, I wanna note that it's important to have some sort of solution incorporated into your talking points. You can have a solution for each point or just for one, but you wanna do that so that folks don't feel like, oh, wow, everything's horrible, all hope is lost. Yes, it's bad, but all hope is not lost. And for example, for me with climate audiences, it's common that someone works or they have someone in their life who works outside. And these conditions, um, even indoors that don't have air conditioning, it makes the heat even more concerning on a community level because workers are now experiencing heat strokes or even death, and these are people's families, uh, family members. But if employers could draft a plan to better protect workers and recognize the heat hazards, keeping up with the outdoor air quality using air now, improving the indoor air quality with better ventilation, well, then that can go a long way. And by the way, all of this is recommended explicitly on the EPA website. And you'll notice that when starting this conversation, I'm talking about something that can be done as a solution. I'm not asking yet for a large scale political solution. I'm speaking to what can be done at home and more immediately. So now finally for the global talking point, I don't go in depth about how climate change will impact the entire world. Instead, what I'm going to do is take the connection between how global climate impacts are affecting us right here at home, no matter where we live. So for instance, noting how climate migration is happening, and unfortunately, we just aren't ready to provide people with the resources they need when they arrive in our state or in our country. And at the same time, if we here in my city in Louisiana have to relocate due to climate, will other regions be ready for us? And it's something important to consider. So let me combine for a minute these tips into a short part of the discussion. For example, what's happening in our natural environment, and this is when I'm meeting someone new, I should have said that up front. So let me back up a little bit. What's happening in our natural environment, it's, it's a major concern for me. I mean, not just because of weather and flooding, but you know, it does keep getting hotter and that's triggering my migraines. It's making me worry more about my cousin who has asthma and has to work outside every day. You know, I even ran across this article recently and it was helping me to realize that climate change is the reason we're running low on crawfish and the season is ending earlier. I mean, I seriously cannot imagine going to a crawfish bowl and having no crawfish. We'd have to rename the entire thing, but we do have the power to change our environment for the better. And that's a great thing because having to redefine what we know as home and to keep risking the health of ourselves and our family members isn't a fight that I'm willing to give up easily. So I've started a conversation. I'm keeping my points simple and relatable. I'm not overloading you with climate terminology and I didn't try to sway you one way or the other. But I think it's fair to say that I gave you something to think about, especially if you're in my region. And I gave you just enough for us to keep engaging in discussion, whether you agree with me or not. And that's what I aim to do. Next slide, please. 
Okay, so I really want to note talking points help, but they're not enough to solve climate miscommunications. So yes, have your talking points, but none of us are robots, we're people. You wanna strengthen your points with those talking points, but don't rely on them solely when you're having a discussion with someone, especially someone you're just meeting on an issue that can be as intense as climate change. Okay, so now we're going to talk about saviorism. And the reason we're going to talk about this, next slide please, is because this is a mindset that prevents people from forming genuine connections to work together on climate when they're going into under-resourced communities. And it's so prevalent in the climate advocacy world from what I notice, but it still goes unaddressed so often. I mean, even I've been guilty of it and I'm continuing to learn every day and it took a great deal of pause and reflection on my own part for me to recognize it. So to give some context into saviorism, if you're not as familiar with the term, it relies on the concept that people of color and marginalized groups, they need you to swoop in and save them from their circumstances. You must educate them and inspire them to take action and you know what's best for them. Somehow that assumption has been made and the assumption has been made also that people lack the agency in these communities to determine what's most urgent for them to address at any given moment in their own community. And it also assumes that people weren't already taking meaningful actions to solve a problem. So when you're in climate savior mode, you'll find yourself saying you need to go help them, not learn, but help. You need to go teach them, not learn, but teach. And this mindset is, and it always will be, ineffective. Next slide, please. Okay, so let's step outside of the climate specifics for a moment. I'm gonna to talk to you about Tom Shoes, just to give you an example of how harmful saviorism can be. So around 2006, um, I know a lot of folks remember Tom Shoes were very, very popular. They had that one-for-one -one model where basically for every pair of shoes you buy, a pair of shoes was donated to a child in need in Africa. People love this concept. Tom's shoes, they were everywhere because it allowed us as Westerners to feel like we were helping to take care of poor children in Africa with an immediate and easy shoe purchase. But what was really happening? Well, what was really happening was the economy was being rattled in Africa because the shoe donations were negatively impacting local shoe businesses and the donated shoes were not provided in a way to create more jobs. Now the deeper societal issues that were resulting in children needing shoes were ignored and glossed over by the shoes being donated. Unbeknownst to a lot of people, a lot of the children actually already had shoes before Toms were donated to them. And it had a negative impact on their self-esteem because it was signaling to them that they were poor and they needed these donations. And it was causing these cultural tensions to rise because the self-expression that children were displaying with their own shoes was being taken away and redefined by Tom's. So what happened with Tom's shoes is a perfect example of what saviorism can do. So it brings people into a space to assume that their role is to help and rescue people and it's redefining the narrative of other people's identities and it harms individuals and it harms communities. So if you think about it that way, and you communicate and you advocate for climate solutions, don't think that the solutions you advocate for can't cause harm to people. 
because there's a pro and a con to every decision, no matter how much you believe in it. And if sitting with that thought makes you uncomfortable, I think that's a good thing. Because what that means is you're reflecting in a way that will make you a much better climate collaborator and communicator when you go into communities that are focused on issues differently from you and less resourced than you. Okay, next slide, please. Onward to the 3D strategy. Okay, so it was on a website called um, Deresta. It was a public speaking website about handling difficult audiences. Um, and I first saw it on this website, the 3D strategy. Next slide. And the 3D strategy is, as you see here, depersonalize, detach, and diffuse. This is really powerful because it's not always in indirect conversation that we're communicating with people. We're also communicating in group presentations and in spaces where there can be positive debate or uncomfortable resistance or some sort of tension in between. So starting with depersonalizing in this context, it means to take out your personal connection to people's reaction to you. Because you can't take someone's reaction to you personally because not everyone views the world the same way as you do when you're talking about climate. Also, everyone is navigating their own issues in their own unique way. And many times the reaction to a topic or a conversation is not a direct attack on your character or your person. And in that same context, when you're detaching, you're not trying to win. When you try to win, both sides lose. Actually, everyone in the room loses because now there's another obvious tension that distracts from the point you were trying to make, a point that was ultimately to bring people together to work on the climate crisis. So to properly detach, that means to walk into a room and know, sometimes I'm going to leave out of this room and convince no one here. No one will want to walk alongside me in the fight against climate change. But that doesn't mean I didn't communicate well. It just means I go back to the drawing board and I figure out how to be more effective the next time. And when you realize that you can't control the communication dynamics in a space, that's when you can switch course and you become the learner. That's when you ask questions. That's when you take notes. People love to share their viewpoints, even if they're so much different from yours. And when you communicate by learning, it makes people feel more seen and heard and like they're already contributing something valuable. So in doing this, you're helping to diffuse, diffusing that negativity that comes with being so attached to your talking points or your mission that you forget about the humanity of just connecting with people. And you can diffuse the situation in a variety of ways. You can make a joke or two, you can pause and tell an interesting story. There is always a way to diffuse a tense room. You just need to know your diffusion style or your diffusion superpower, so to speak, in advance. Next slide, please. So you notice how it feels when someone's texting you and then they start texting you in all caps to let you know that they're yelling at you. Even when it's written, that just doesn't go over well and it's not a good look. You know, it looks even worse than those unnecessary caps. Being defensive when you're trying to do something as important as working and communicating with other people on climate change. So yes, there are quite a few characters you can encounter who will make you defensive. And one of those people could be the person who's trying to tell you that everything you know is wrong. 
Now, if this happens in a group situation, you don't have to respond to every statement, which starts to make it seem more like an argument. You want to tell the person who's challenging your expertise that you hear them, you recognize them, and you want to learn more from them. Maybe you could plan some time together to exchange notes and information. And there's also that person who wants to just be negative about everything. And the best way to overcome negativity is positivity. Don't go the route of toxic positivity, but do be positive. Give a person time and space to air out their grievances, but in a more productive way. So instead of during a presentation or during a collaborative moment, ask someone if they'd like to step away and have a chat in private after the conversation ends with the group, if you're in a group setting. If you're alone and the conversation is one-to-one and a person says, you know, I just, everything's bad and everything's negative, then you can say, hey, you know, let's take some time to reflect, write down and define our issues. We'll meet another time by Zoom, by phone, or in person for a coffee break, lengthy email, whatever works for you. But usually what's happening is that people want to be heard and they express their frustration oftentimes in unproductive ways. That's one of the most important things to remember. Sometimes the reactions of people, even our own reactions, they are based on not understanding the root of our miscommunication. And if we get defensive first, then we'll never understand what was at the heart of that miscommunication. Next slide, please. Okay, so if we're going to have deep impact, we have to touch base on the formal and informal data we're collecting as communicators. Next slide. Thank you. So consider this question. If there is statistical underrepresentation in the climate movement, can true equity be achieved? Now I pose this question because statistical data definitely helps me, especially when I'm writing to provide sound evidence, but in real time, especially when I'm communicating verbally, I don't cite stats because people will always relate to people more than statistical information. Unless I give a stat as powerful as you have a 100% chance of getting the flu tomorrow. I'm going to skip that because here in Louisiana, even if I say 87% of Louisiana is affected by allergies and it's made worse by climate change, that doesn't mean that the person I'm speaking to will consider themselves to be part of the percentage, even if they are. So I have a hunch that there remains a lot of statistical underrepresentation in the climate movement. Now, when you just saw Clara's presentation, this speaks to why the work she's doing is so, so important. And we need more people doing work like Clara's. And if you go into a lot of communities that are defined as underrepresented, they're defined in that way for a reason. You were to ask most people in these communities if they've ever participated in a climate study I would say that it's pretty safe to assume that the number of yeses to that question would be fairly dismal. So how can you know that we're achieving true equity in the climate movement? Now, if more efforts aren't put in place to more strongly statistically represent people from the very communities that we're seeking to partner with as climate champions, then we can't use numbers to define what equity looks like in those very same communities. And because we don't have that more sound representation, we're led into the realm of assumptions when we communicate. 
And then we're all communicating based on assumptions. And most of these assumptions about why people are doing what they're doing and who they are and how they navigate the world tends to be just flat out wrong. And that's why I really appreciate this quote from uh, Rochelle Goodrich. She says it best. Next slide, please. While you judge me by my outward appearance, I'm silently doing the same as you, even though there's a 90% chance that in both cases, our assumptions are wrong. Next slide, please. 130 million. What might this number represent? Well, it could be any number of things, but what it actually is, is the number of people between the ages of 16 and 74 who lack proficiency in literacy and read below a sixth grade level. And this is according to a US Department of Education study. So if this is the case, as a writer who's published extensively on climate, that means I'm often in my own eco chamber. And for any of us, myself included, in aiming to be a better climate communicator for people who are already ahead socioeconomically or have academic prestige, well, then you're staying in that communication bubble. And that's not to say we don't need these groups because we absolutely need everybody. We need everyone, but if we're only prioritizing communicating about climate with people who already take some sort of interest in it, whether they agree or disagree, we're being short-sighted. So now let's say I take 130 million people who might be less likely to communicate with me based on articles which, you know, it doesn't mean they won't, just means they might be less likely based on the stat I've shared. And let's add in some competing priorities on the next slide. So if we add in the number of people who live in unsafe neighborhoods, have inadequate childcare, substandard housing, are experiencing homelessness, be it sheltered or unsheltered, inadequate nutrition and food security, and energy cost burdens, these are just a few of the competing priorities that are at people's front door every day. What does that do? Next slide, please. Let's going to now take that number of people who can't prioritize climate change as the first thing on their to-do list to over 250 million. And if you'd like to go back and look at those, at those different subsects and do the research on your own, you'll find that this number is still below the bar. So if that's the case, and this is a safe number of the people with less capacity to engage with me on climate change and political advocacy, and it's likely that these are the same people who have competing priorities that are once again, most impacted by climate change. And what I mentioned at the beginning of this presentation, those underrepresented in the climate fight some of these competing priorities define as to why. And that leads us to some of the problematic rhetoric when we're communicating about climate change. Next slide, please. So once again, considering these competing priorities that people have and the different ways that people learn and process information, the fact is that climate change cannot be everyone's first priority to address. And even when they are addressing it, they can't do it in the same way. This is where it becomes even more important to think about the phrase of meeting people where they are. 
I know it seems like a phrase we might hear all the time and it's just repeated over and over, but that's because it's so important and it's something we really need to digest and reflect on. So if you look at these memes, it doesn't take long, or for me, it doesn't take long to see how problematic this is. Climate change is a big, huge issue. Yes, and it affects everyone in the world. And if we don't solve it, we won't have a planet to live on. At the same time, we are here right now, and there are many things to address. And we have to figure out how to work at the intersections of these things, because guess what? In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, as people were losing their lives and their jobs and experiencing the impacts of isolation, focusing on climate change wasn't the easiest thing in the world to do. For many people, they just couldn't do it at all. Even with my work that's dedicated to the space, it was hard for me to do. So if you look at the other meme and the discussion about climate changes or the representation, I should say, of climate change as the only big wave as everyone else below prioritizes less significant matters by comparison, this doesn't work. This rhetoric doesn't work because if there aren't people prioritizing something like healthcare, then people will be sick and they won't be able to work on climate change. Yes, climate change makes people sick, but people need healthcare without justice that addresses all those bubbles you see of so many things that are knocking at people's front door. Climate change will indeed wipe us out. And it won't be because people didn't put climate change first. It'll be because we didn't put people first in a way that allowed us all to come together to work on climate. So if we know that we're still looking at a lot of the data that lacks, and we need that data to more deeply communicate with potential climate activists who are not acknowledged and some people who are just all out invisible to this movement. Becoming a better climate communicator to speak to those groups is going to include sourcing your own data. So how are you going to do that? Next slide, please. So I consider this a solutions component, sourcing your own climate data. You're going to need to create your own data points by finding environmental justice organizations nearby or city council meetings that are outside of your usual stomping grounds and attend those. Actually, I encourage you to find uh, events just overall where people are advocating for local issues that are outside your usual realm. Begin to take notes, introduce yourself to people be transparent about who you are and what you're there to learn. So you're gathering data when you're there on what you're learning. You'll be surprised by what you discover and you'll be surprised that if you don't intrude on other people with your solutions, you're going to learn something new, not just about how other people exist in the world, but you'll learn new things about yourself as well. And if you think that you have nothing new to learn, even in your own city, and you've already lost the game. And losing this game has implications that go far beyond our lifetime. So when I say sourcing local climate data, consider that that intersection needs to be there because the data you collect is less likely to say anything explicitly about climate change. But climate change is indeed related to all aspects of life. So there's always a connection there. 
You just have to find it. Next slide, please. So you can look to the characteristics of a strong mission statement online, um, the types that companies use. But the great thing is you yourself, even if you're part of a company, you still happen to be a human being and that's amazing. So based on that, it's important to craft a mission statement that holds you to your purpose, but also gives other people clarity on your values. So a very powerful mission statement is not going to be very long. It's going to offer that clarity without using too many words. It's going to be memorable. It's also going to call people to action and give them hope. So when Michelle Obama, she started the, it was the Global Girls Alliance. And she said that she wanted to lift up grassroots leaders and communities all over the world who were clearing away the hurdles that too many girls face. So for you, you would want to start with your name, what you hope to achieve, how you hope to achieve it, and who you hope to achieve it for. And just in case I gave that prompt a little too fast, I'll say it again. You want to start with your name, what you hope to achieve, and who you hope to achieve it for as you're writing your own personal climate mission statement. So for me, I would say, my name is Prince Tally, and I want to use my lived experience to create a model of change that Black communities in the Deep South can use as a resource as they continue defining climate solutions through equity and justice. Two sentence maximum. And two sentence maximum is a good rule of thumb because this will not only help you to communicate more strongly about climate, but it's your own reminder of your deeper purpose and your role as a climate advocate. And I do know and recognize that some of the things I may have said here were a bit uncomfortable. And I do appreciate you all for sitting here and reflecting on these things with me. And thank you so much for your time. If you have any questions and you'd like to reach out to me, um, next slide, please. You can contact me through my website at insella-tally.com. Okay. Thank you so much for your, um, for your presentation. We do have a few questions. First, Debbie asks, first, thank you. And if I'm a person with privilege, how do I connect to people and communities who live these frontline experiences and are tired of doing the labor of educating new privileged folks over and over? Um, is it possible to center both justice communities and people who are learning things for the first time? Should we and can we? So I'll, the first part of that, thank you for that question, Debbie. The first part of my answer there is sometimes when you go to learn, if you're going in a space where folks are already doing something um, or advocating for something in their own way, you actually don't have to have questions to ask. They're not going to be spending any additional time educating you because they were already in the midst of what they were doing. You're there. You know, you don't have to be silently and awkwardly there, but you'll see a lot of the answers coming to light on their own based on how people are working around you. If you assume more so the fly on the wall status, listening and learning without asking too many questions. And that would be to me a very sound way to 
to get educated without asking folks to do any additional labor to educate you. And what was the second part of that question? Just, is it possible to center both justice communities and people who are learning things for the first time? I think so. Um, I think to center justice communities and folks who are learning, if you're among the learning crowd, I would say that first tip of just hanging around and you know, even if you're not asking a lot of questions, just taking note of what's happening and how you can contribute without intruding, that's one thing. And for folks who are already deeply involved in the work, I mean, they're there. So sometimes I think it's just a matter of showing up and creating a strategy with other folks who are learning of how do you show up in the right way. I feel like sometimes we think about how we want to do this, but we don't sit with others and plan it out in writing. And when you do that, that can be so much more powerful and consider the pros and cons of each approach and come to a, a, collaborative, a collaborative approach that allows you to enter a space where you usually wouldn't be and learn in a way that's not a burden to others. Going off of writing, Ashwit asks, what is the best advice you would give in writing a new climate statement? In writing a what climate statement? A new climate statement. My best advice would be to read it out loud to yourself and then read it to someone else. Read it to someone who, one, understands the work you're doing and supports you, and then read it to someone who is either just not interested or doesn't agree with what you're working on and see how both respond. So somewhere in the middle of those two different types of responses, you'll find a nice tension that can be relatable. I'm not gonna say across the board because you'll always have folks who feel differently about it, but saying your statement out loud to someone else with, to two people at least with opposing viewpoints can help you build on that statement with a lot more perspective. Another question from Ashworth is, what is your favorite op-ed that you wrote for the op-ed project? Oh, um, my favorite one was the one in BET that was published by BET about um, the West Virginia versus the EPA ruling, because I was able to draw a connection between what was happening there, how it would affect us here in Louisiana, and how it would affect communities of color across the country who were at the front lines. And I think anywhere that anyone can write something where they're drawing on the important connection that goes beyond um, one specific region, showing that what happens there affects us and we all matter, every decision matters, it's all interconnected, then that's a success in my book. This next one isn't really a question, more of a comment from Wendy, um, who says, in terms of representation, a community of minorities like my mom was affected by an environmental issue which affected her respiratory health. Our research was done at a local university that probed this issue and found many were affected in various ways pertinent to health. It's just a comment that she wanted to share. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, we're still waiting for a few more questions. So for everybody, if you're thinking of a question, please put it in the Q&A. 
Okay, a question from Callum. They ask, how can people find a way to continue to support communities who do not mutually support the person's cause? That's a great question. I think sometimes that's when we get into the realm of just accepting. You can't win over everyone with your cause and that's fine. But you know what you can do is even if there's a completely separate cause they're working on and your missions will never align, if you do have the time and capacity to just learn from each other, you never know what you can learn from that other person working on a completely separate issue. I see it all the time that you can bring back into your work to make you even more effective as a communicator, as a climate advocate. So sometimes I think if you can say, I'm not focusing on our different missions, but I'm focusing on the journey of learning from someone, regardless of what they're doing, you can bring that back to have impact in your space. Another question from Debbie is, do you have either a favorite story about interactions with CCL inclusion efforts or a cautionary tale? I have both. Um, so my favorite story would be um, when we were here and when I was working with CCL here in the Third Coast region with uh, Susan Adams, the fa fabulous regional coordinator, um, for Louisiana, Texas, and Mississippi. And we were able to get, I think it was 40 kids and 10 mentors. My numbers might be a little off because that was right before the pandemic really hit. Um, out to Houston to learn about climate. And they heard from Dr. Natasha DeJarnay and so many of them. It resulted in, uh, in curriculum being developed at the school specific to climate. And also it allowed um, a lot of the students to think about climate in a different way. And so many of them decided that what they wanted to do now was be scientists or work on the environment or work in energy. And it was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. When you take people who have these different approaches, bring them together to work on a shared issue and learn from each other in very respectful ways, the impact is just can be incredible. A cautionary tale would be when I first started doing climate advocacy work and I walked into a space expecting everyone to have at least the same base level knowledge of climate as me. And I gave a presentation based on that and it fell completely flat. No one knew what I was talking about, nor did they care. And I saw um, quite a few yawns that were not very well hidden. And it was just um, not a good experience. It was not a good experience because I was not as aware at that time that I needed to scale back and realize that this wasn't about me. This wasn't about how I wanted to do things. And when you think about it that way, um, approaching any situation where this is about me and how I wanna do it when it's for the greater good of community and the world, it's likely to fall flat as that presentation did for me. And following up on that question, um, Lisa asks, when facilitating a group conversation where participant, participants include both people new to learning about inclusivity and people who have been doing the work for a very long time and are tired of answering 101 questions, what strategies should facilitators use? So if you know in advance that that's going to be the dynamic in the room, be sure you have first, I would say some, some terms of agreement or some norms that you set together. 
um, at the beginning of that group presentation or interaction because mistakes are likely to happen and you want to set that tone first. And I think direct the conversation more towards different actions you can take and let the discussion develop naturally instead of letting folks um, ask questions in a way that makes people who've been doing the work feel like I'm spending all my time educating you instead of productively continuing with what I was doing. And in that sense, if you have a well-structured plan, we're considering this action. Folks are going to speak up if they're in the room and they already care about these issues. And they may say, well, I don't think we should do that for X reason. And then another person says, well, maybe we can do it for Y reason. They're learning from each other naturally. It doesn't have to be as black and white as Q&A. And if you can strategize on tips and tricks to prevent it from becoming a Q&A beforehand, you're more so set up for success, even if it's a room that's blended in that way. Thank you. Um, Gad asks, what is the best way for business owners to fight climate change? What practices should they implement? Business owners in what realm or just business owners in general? They did not specify. So if you'd like to specify, okay. go ahead, but maybe just in general. Okay, well, I'll just answer generally. Thank you for the question. I would say even if you're a business owner, um, you know the stats and the information, because that's going to be, I feel, sometimes a different conversation if you're talking to other business owners or if you're talking to folks who you want to get on board with your business to uh, work on climate. I'm not exactly sure who your audience is, so this answer will be very general. If you're talking to other business owners, that's when I would say the stats and facts and numbers about how it's affecting the business and the bottom line is really going to matter. Um, having that ready to go in a way that's connected to climate would be beneficial. If you're talking to folks who you just want to be involved with you and your business, if you're fighting climate, then in that sense, you can still show up as yourself and say how your business is connected, but really just connect with the folks you're working with on the ground. Yeah, thank you. And our last question is from Bob, who asks, what role do you see CCL members doing to help those 250 million that are too busy to consider opportunities the Inflation Reduction Act may provide them, even those that may rely on group programs like community solar panel projects, and should we even try to promote it to them? What can CCL do? Well, I think CCL first should to continue to facilitate conversations like these um, with people where you can come together in a group environment to learn and strategize. But it's such a hard question to answer in a sense because, give me a second to think about this. That's a toughie. I think when it comes to the RA, um, and promoting of, of anything that's part of a climate solution, it's always worth the time to not just try, but get to a point where you can explain to the person you're advocating for the climate solution to, you know, here's why I advocate for this. 
And I don't know if you agree or disagree. I'm just telling you where I stand and feel free to contest it. And they might. But as long as you leave, as long as you try and you leave that room open for a counter argument, then you're still going to make some progress. It's never a waste of time, if I'm understanding that question correctly. And to go back to the first point, can you repeat the first part of the question again? Yeah, I got to I got to scroll through them. There's a bunch. Um, so, Sorry. no, you're all good. So what role do you see CCL members doing to help those 250 million that are too busy to consider opportunities the Inflation Reduction Act may provide them? I would love to see CCL spend more time on research that is not research as usual to specifically target those communities. And it could already be being done. So um, I, I may not know, but I think that would be really powerful if CCLers were to get together and say, let's learn more about people um, who deal with these competing priorities. Let's educate ourselves and let's strategize on ways that we can build community with them. Not ways we can get them to support what we're doing, but ways that we can build community with them. And if CCLers, CCL is already so coordinated. So if CCL could just add a layer to that by coordinating strategically to build community, then I think that would be extremely powerful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.